So uh, we've been in this series called We Need to Talk, and throughout this series we've hit some very heavy subjects. Um, the first week was about mothers um, and women in ministry and how that looks. Um, that was probably the easier of them. Uh, the week after that, we talked about same-sex relationships, gender or uh, sexual identity, sexual orientation, all those things. And then last week, we talked about gender identity, um, tackling a very large cultural issue of transgender that we're seeing in our world. And part of this series, I ask you to ask me questions um, to see what you guys actually wanted to know, either biblically or just about myself or whatever it was, whatever questions. So for the next probably 45 minutes, not to just tell you that it's going to be long, but it is going to be long, um, for the next 45 minutes or so. We're going to work through some of these questions next week. We'll be working through the rest of them. And then uh, the week after that will be Father's Day. We'll finish up our series uh, giving a biblical call towards fathers. And then we'll start our new series after Father's Day. Uh, so we've got two weeks of this answering questions that you guys submitted, either you here in person or uh, we had a couple online that submitted questions too. But... Let's get right into it. So I think, I, I don't think I put them together at the same. So show me the first question and I'll tell you if you need to go on or not. Move on to the next question. <laughs> we'll go back to that one. That one will be the second one. So the first question, I changed the order in my notes, but not on the screens uh, apparently. But how do we decide which parts of the Old Testament are still relevant to us today? Now, this is kind of a complex question because there's a lot of gray area when you get down to the, the Old Testament part of it. But the Old Testament is still relevant for us today. We know this because of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So there are many things in the Old Testament that are used for teaching and are good for teaching, like how to get closer to God, how to live a godly life, teaching what is good, rebuking what is bad, training in righteousness and correcting behavior. That's why we still preach on the Old Testament. That's why in Sunday school uh, or over at kids, your kids are still learning about Daniel in the lion's den and Noah in the ark. It's still preached on, it's still looked at, it's still studied and Honestly, if the Old Testament wasn't relevant to us, then years ago, the early church would have gone away with it and we would never have seen the Old Testament or we wouldn't really have paid attention to it. But since the Old Testament is still in your Bibles, it's still important to us. However, Hebrews chapter eight and chapter nine make it clear that we're not bound by the Old Covenant, which is where I think this question is actually asking. That references the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament and of the Old Covenant, which was established in Exodus chapter 20 uh, with the Ten Commandments. And it continued to grow and expand throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and uh, would later be repeated in Deuteronomy as Moses would proclaim this to the next generation. But um, Hebrews chapter eight, verse 13 says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon appear. So there's parts of the law of Moses that are old, 
They're, they're obsolete. They don't apply to us anymore simply because we're under the new covenant now. Now to say that sounds like we can just ignore all of the Old Testament law. We can ignore all of that, which would include the Ten Commandments, which many Christians still hold to a high value. So the question is more focused on how do we decipher between the laws of Moses, right? With the old covenant, we're not under it, but are there still parts of it that are relevant to us? And I would say, yes. But you need to understand a little bit more about the law of Moses, I think, to kind of lay the groundwork. So this law of Moses, think of it as the law that our government has established here in America, in some sense. There's the speed limit sign, right? We're all familiar with the speed limit sign. It's not there necessarily to limit your fun or your travel time to your destination, even though it might do those things, it's there to help prevent accidents and keep people safe on the road. And there are guidelines that are followed. Now, maybe in the Old Testament, during the times of Moses, if they had cars that could go 100 miles per hour, then within the law of Moses, you might see, thou shall not go over 55 miles per hour but we don't because they didn't have that because some of these laws are simply for the civil part of the law, which is what we, uh, most uh, governments hold to a lot of those civil laws anyways. But it's also broken up into, uh, I think really two main sections. Aside from the civil laws, uh, which dealt with the government part of it, there's the cleanliness laws and then there's the moral or ethical laws. The cleanliness laws they deal with rituals and dietary laws like don't eat pork and you have to sacrifice certain animals on certain days and certain times for certain sins. Those cleanliness laws, the ritualistic laws, we're not under. They, they don't apply to us today. They're still important because it tells us a little bit about their context, especially spanning into the, the gospel accounts where they're still under this old covenant. So it helps us understand the context, but we're not bound by those laws. So that's why we can eat pork and we can have clothes that have two different blends of material in it, like cotton polyester. Uh, that's why I can still trim the edges of my beard because we're not under the, I know it's not really a beard, but like I, I like to think that it is. It makes me feel better. Uh, but that's why we can still do those things because we're not under the old covenant. However, there's still moral laws. And these moral laws reflect the character of God and they hold a standard for morality. Now, the purpose of the moral laws is to have a mirror, to see your sinfulness, to see the, the standard of God and his righteousness and see that we fall short, which makes us eternally grateful for what Jesus did on the cross when he died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. But how do you decide? How do you decide which laws are for cleanliness, which laws are for morality? Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight says, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the character and nature of God has not changed, which means that it's also revealed in the New Testament under the new covenant. So how do you decide? You, you look at the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. What the New Testament affirms about the Old Testament that is moral or holy, that is relevant to us, and that is what is under Christ's law. 
Those are the ways that we should act as Christians. You can find this not only in the gospel accounts, but in the, in the letters of Paul and even in James as they, they strive to help people find Christian holiness and to try and help people see what it is to mean a, or to be a Christian. Now, Old Testament laws that are not affirmed in the New Testament, like I said, still useful in understanding the history but you're not necessarily bound under those laws because we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. I hope that answered that question. Next question, which is the first one that's on the slides. Is Jesus and God the same person? It depends on your definition of person, but no, they're not. Next question. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stay here. Um, I'll explain a little bit more. So what this question is actually came from one of the kids in our kids' ministry. Uh, I think what it's referring to is the Trinity, uh, which alone takes a lot of faith to believe because simply I do not know of an illustration that completely under or completely illustrates the Trinity without falling under some type of uh, heresy that the church has deemed as heretical teaching. Um, so, you know, you've probably heard the illustrations of, of water, how water can be ice and it can be liquid and it can be... Um, uh, water vapor, there we go, gas, thank you. I just didn't want to say gas, but here we are. Um, yeah, so if you teach it that way, it's actually heretical. But so um, try not to use illustrations because they're, they're not helpful in the long run. They might help someone for a little bit understand, but um, a lot of these illustrations fall under some type of heresy. So that's what makes it so difficult. And what makes it difficult is that there's three persons and there's one God. So technically, is Jesus and God the same person? No, because they're two different persons, but they're all, both one God. And that's where we have trouble understanding it because we're like, well, how can we have three different people but then only have one God? But before I don't answer that question, I wanna give you a little bit of biblical background on why we came up with the Trinity. Uh, well, not why we came up with it, how we discovered it. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 says it pretty clearly in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the gospels, Jesus, the Son of God, will uh, reference uh, talking to and about the Father in heaven. So there's two of them. There's God the Father and God the Son who are interacting in Acts chapter one and verses, or chapters one and two. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he's ascending to God the Father, which he proclaims. And then he promises the Holy Spirit, which descends on the people. So it's like the full Trinity is represented at the end of Jesus's ministry here on earth, but it's also represented at the very beginning in his baptism. Matthew chapter three, verse 16 through 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. So you see there's the Holy Spirit that's descending like a dove. You've got Jesus, the Son of God, in the water. And then you've got God the Father saying, I'm pleased with my Son. Now, it's just not in the New Testament. It also happens in the Old Testament too. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness, over, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
was hovering over the waters. Later in Genesis chapter three, verses 14 and 15, we see this reference to Jesus. Now it doesn't specifically say Jesus, but God tells the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden that an offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And this is a reference to Jesus. Now, what I, I kind of love about this and the placement of it is that Jesus isn't really specifically referenced until after the fall of humanity, which shows you that God's plan was from the beginning, that uh, when man would fall, he would send his son. And I love that. But also, it's also affirmed in John chapter one, verse one, because John chapter one, verse one, some of you probably haven't memorized, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You see, the word is Jesus, as John would later lay out throughout his entire gospel, affirming that the Trinity was in the place at the beginning. Now we see it and we're like, well, he clearly says the word was God. But I think he would have captivated his Jewish audience in the very first sentence where he says, or first part of that sentence where it says, in the beginning was the word. Because how they would have, they would have immediately connected it to the creation story where they, see, where they hear and read, in the beginning, God. So what John has done is very cleverly put was the word in place of God to even more emphasize that Jesus was God too. And this is where we have the three persons, but they're all one God. So we're not polytheistic. We don't worship three separate gods. We worship one God who's expressed in three persons. Next question. <clears throat> I have a, a friend, family member, involved in a same-sex relationship. I never seem to know what to say to them, any suggestions on what to say, should I invite them to church and pursue a relationship with them outside of church? So after, before and after our talk on homosexuality, uh, I got questions before and I got questions after that talk that related to this. So I, it's no one person wrote this on there. I kind of made a list of all of the questions and put it into one. So I'm hoping that by doing it this way, I can answer all of your questions with one uh, with one swoop. But to recap a little bit from two weeks ago, <clears throat> brokenness is still brokenness. Sin is still sin. Whether it's a lie, murder, sexual immorality, or pride, it's all still sinful. So we're all still broken people. Now I do want to ask a hypothetical question just for you to reflect on. No one answer it out loud. If the person in your life who is being referenced here right now person in your life was prideful, lied occasionally, and usually had the latest gossip that's been going around, instead of being involved in a same-sex relationship, would it change anything? Like, would it change anything about the way that you approach them? Would it change the way that you feel around them? Would it change anything about your relationship if they weren't involved or pursuing a same-sex relationship, but instead, you know, lied occasionally, was kind of prideful at times, and gossiped? Now, if it would, then you have a hard issue with that specific type of brokenness. And this specific issue of same-sex relationships, you need to deal with that in your heart. Because if you see it as brokenness, then you'll see everyone else as broken, just as you are broken. And you'll have some compassion and empathy because you're broken just as much as they are, they just might be broken differently. 
Now, if it doesn't, and you're still like, you know, I, I have compassion and I have empathy for them, but I still feel a little bit awkward. I, I still don't really know what I'm supposed to say. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And really, it's not just them. It's just like it, it can extend out, you know, people with drug addictions. I don't really know how to approach them. Uh, people who, who openly sin, you know, I don't know what to do with them. Then I would encourage you to take a hard look at yourself and rediscover the plank in your own eye. Because oftentimes what happens is as Christians, we get used to the fact that Jesus died for us and that he rose again, that we forget that we're still sinful. We forget that we're still broken. Right? We talk about how we've been redeemed by Christ, but we're still falling into sin all the time. And we forget about that. And as Jesus would say, look at the plank in your own eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. So I would say, you know, pull up the, the law the, the law of Christ and have a, a moment where you're reflecting and making sure that you, you are dealing with your own brokenness before you start dealing with other people's brokenness. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter nine, I'm gonna give you some practical advice too. <clears throat> we talked about this in Bible study if you came to Bible study, but 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verses 19 through 23, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he's saying, I, I'm... Uh, free, I belong to no one, but I've made myself a servant to everyone uh, just to win as many as possible. And he talks about how to the Jewish people, he, he became under the law so that he could relate to them. He, uh, for the Gentiles, he was not under the law, but under the law of Christ so that he could win some souls there. He would, um, when, when, there, when he would encounter weak people, he would make himself weak so that he could win their souls. And what Paul is trying to say, and what I think he's saying is to find common ground with people, to find a common interest and start there. Have lunch with them, have coffee, invite them over to your house, find common ground with people and relate to them. And once you start relating to them, you'll see that they're just people, right? It's not some horrible thing that they've done. I mean, we put them in categories and we make certain sins more bad than others, but the reality is, is that we're all just broken people and we're all in need of a savior and we need our savior every single day of our life here on earth. But to answer the question, just treat them like a human. <laughs> Don't be awkward around them. Treat them like family. Treat them like your best friend and find that common ground. But also understand this, because our culture confuses it so much, I see it. Loving them does not necessarily mean you're affirming them. And we talked about this some in the homosexuality talk, but what the culture will tell you is that love is affirmation. But really what it is, is God is love and God still loves the people, but doesn't affirm what they do. If he affirmed what they do, then just imagine how much more broken we would be because Christ, even though he would have come and died and rose again, everyone would have done whatever they wanted and it would have been complete and total anarchy. See, God, even though he didn't affirm our sinfulness, he loved us enough to send his son. And that's the difference between love and affirmation. Now to answer the other question, should you invite them to church? Yes but don't expect them to come if you haven't invested in them and showed them that you love them. <laughs> I 
I have something in my notes. I'm just, I'm going to share it, all right? I asked Chloe before, and she was like, it's up to you, huh? So I just want to, I want to, it's going to be shocking, okay? Like, this is going to be a very shocking statement for some of you. What I'm not doing is telling you this is what you need to do. What I'm not saying is this is how it should be all the time. And I'm, I'm setting it up this way so that, probably so it softens the blow, but like, I'm trying to set this up just because I know this could very easily be taken way out of context. But not to say that it still can't. You have to set your own boundaries on what lines you're willing to cross and what lines you're not. So when you're setting these boundaries, I'm not saying if you've set that boundary, then to walk over it and just ignore the boundary. What I'm saying and what I'm trying to do is help you to, to think of this a different way. To maybe even think of it of how shocking it would be for the Pharisees to see Jesus acting in this way. But this is just my opinion. Since it's Pride Month in America here today, I'm gonna say something. It's gonna be bold, but I believe it to be true based on how Jesus acted in the gospels, how he was always hanging around the sinners, how he was always going to their homes, how he was always going to their groups, how he was always going to them and never them coming to him. Don't expect someone to go to church with you if you aren't willing to go to, pride, to a Pride Month rally with them. Don't expect someone to go to church with you if you're not willing to go to a Pride Month rally with them. But just like you can go to a bar and not drink, you can go to a Pride Month rally and not wear rainbow colored apparel, not hold Pride themed signs and not support any of the other things. You can be loving and go with, with that friend, go with that person, but not affirming. Likely, if they've built a relationship with you, they know where you stand. And they would know how uncomfortable it would be for you to go in that position for them. Just, how, just think about how uncomfortable it would be for them to come into here when they've been living their life in that way. But again, set boundaries keep those boundaries. If you feel like attending that would be supporting it and that person would see it as supporting, then don't do it. But you have to, to work it out between yourself and God. But understand that they're not gonna go to church, to a church who calls them to repent of their lifestyle if you don't first show them that you love them. And that's what we're trying to do in our year of outreach. We're trying to go and show the community that we do love them. We love them outside of these walls. You don't have to come into these walls for, you, for us to love you. We'll just show you. We'll go out into our community and show you. So next question. How do you get your hair to look so good all the time? <laughs> Two things for you. Great genetics and a fantastic barber who's cut my hair every, almost every single time for all of my life. Now, I will say this. I have heard from some people. It hasn't happened to me yet. Maybe it's just because I'm young. I've heard from some people that his services sometimes cause baldness. <laughs> so results may vary. But as for me, it's worked out super great. <laughs> Next question. 
Okay, uh, I'll switch that one too. Go to the next one. We'll answer that next. <laughs> All right, how do I give my kids empathy and compassion towards the cultural norms, transgender, homosexuality, drug, drug addictions, etc., to the extent of loving them like Jesus would while still teaching the morality of Jesus and all the same time keeping my kids from being judgmental and looking down upon those who struggle with these issues. Um, I, I am humbled that someone would ask me for parenting advice having not had a kid. Uh, I, and I don't mean that to be funny, like I, I'm genuine about that. Um, my answer might change in a, in a few years, but to start off, you can't give what you don't already have. You must have empathy and compassion towards them. You must be able to love them like Jesus and not look down on them first. Because as a kid growing up, I knew I looked at my mom and dad all the time. And if, you've, if anyone in here is married and you've heard the term or the phrase, you're acting just like your mother, you're acting just like your father, it's because we learn as we're growing up to act like them. So if you don't have compassion and empathy and, and love for these people, they're probably not gonna get that from you. If they ever have it, it's not gonna be from you, it's gonna be from someone else. But I wanna give you a couple passages to look over for yourself because I think Jesus demonstrates it well with his disciples because uh, his disciples, they were broken. They, they had their cultural norms and uh, he had to teach them to be, have empathy on people that they didn't necessarily want to be around. John chapter four, uh, these are two main people, the Samaritans and the tax collectors. John chapter four tells the story about the Samaritan woman by the well. Now Jews didn't carry much compassion for Samaritans because they didn't associate with one another. So for the disciples to walk up and see Jesus talking, not only to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman, they would have been like, whoa, 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 what, what is happening? But just because of that experience, they're like, wait, we were told not to love the Samaritans. We were told to look down on women, but Jesus, our, our teacher, our savior is looking at this woman and saying, and just talking to her. Maybe we should start rethinking how we treat Samaritans. Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25 through 37 is the parable of the good Samaritan where Jesus is teaching about how these uh, Jewish leaders and Jewish people were passing this, this Jew who was on the road and he was broken and beaten and he had everything stolen from him, but the good Samaritan would walk by and help him. And just by hearing this, they're like, wait, hold on. We're not all that good. Like, even though we, we come from the ancestry line, maybe we're not all that good and we need to, to start treating these people better. Luke chapter 19, going to the tax collectors. Uh, Jesus encounters Zacchaeus and, and he was the chief tax collector, which by the way, was probably one of the most hated groups by the Jews. And just by Jesus going and, and meeting uh, Zacchaeus where he was, going into his home and eating with them, the disciples would have been encountering that and seeing it and even having conversations with them. And then there's Matthew at chapter nine, verses nine through 13, the calling of Matthew, the tax collector as a disciple. If you look how Jesus shares meals with these people, he interacts with them, he talks to them. These are just a few examples. His disciples are there and they're watching it happen. They're learning by watching. 
They knew not to talk to Samaritans, but they saw Jesus do it. They hated tax collectors, but they saw Jesus love them. Now, if you've ever watched The Chosen, uh, it's, a, it's a series, one of our Sunday school classes, I think I've been hearing the theme song uh, down the hallway. But if you've ever watched it, I think the directors did a great job at showing what it might've looked like when Matthew joined the disciples and how the other disciples treated him. Now, I don't think it was an accident that Jesus chose a tax collector to be a disciple, but these disciples very likely thought that it was a mistake. They're like, really? Like a tax collector? You, you know that he stole from us, right? You know that he's oppressed us, right? You know that he you know, flaunts all of his wealth to us and he was one of us, right? But simply Jesus having a former tax collector as a disciple, constantly eating with sinners and the, the disciples would have gained empathy for them. They, they would have just naturally drawn towards that because they respected and loved their teacher. They respected and loved Jesus. Now to answer the other part of the question, your home is meant to be the place where your kids learn the truth of God's word and how to live in a way that pleases God. It should be the safest place on earth for them. Uh, a place where they can ask you whatever question that they want to and not be blown off or not be thought of that questions, you know, that question's dumb. We don't know that question, but that they're constantly pursuing questions and they're asking questions and the parents are trying to give them the best answers that they can to where they can have conversations with you. Proverbs 22, verse six, to, to go back to the baby dedication, start your children off on the way they should go. And even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Psalm 127, verse four says this, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children born in one's youth. So it's just having real and authentic conversations with them. Because the world we live in isn't shy about letting them know anything at a very, very young age. So not that they always understand what's actually being said and what's actually being taught, but the parents, I think, need to be the first one into the door so that they hear the truth, they know the truth, they stand firm on the truth, and then when they go out into the world, into their schools, into their friend groups, when they're being exposed to all of this, they're probably gonna come with you, come to you with questions, but they know what the truth of God's word is. Now, this is my opinion, but I think when you model the love of Jesus towards the cultural norms, but stand firm on the truth of God's word to teach that truth to your kids, they will have empathy and compassion. They'll gain that because they've seen you interact with these people no differently than you interact with your own friends who are Christians, who are just like you. But they'll have the love for the people, but they will stay true to who they are in Christ and they will stand firm on the truth of God's word. So I hope that answered your question. Next question, and uh, this should be the last one. Outside of love and relationship through modeling, what are specific steps to lead apathetic believers, I added believers in there, uh, it said apathetic or unbelievers, but apathetic believers or unbelievers into a deep faith in Jesus. So I was a little stumped on this one. And it's because love and relationships are very broad categories and there's a lot of practical steps that can fall under 
the, the simple terms love and relationships, um, especially through modeling. But for unbelievers, I would go back to 1 Corinthians 9 where you find the common ground and uh, you start talking to them and that's how you start your gospel conversations with them. Um, for the, the way that you approach it is differently, but they're the same basic principles, uh, I think, based on scripture. For unbelievers, it's leaning more towards evangelism. They don't know what Jesus has done for them. They might've heard it, but they don't really know. For the apathetic believer, they know, they understand it. They've just lost the, the passion behind it. And so where uh, an unbeliever will need evangelism, an apathetic believer will need discipleship. But it's the same uh, types of principles. And I, I kind of put them down into five easy ones. They're fairly broad and generic, but uh, that's for the sake of this answer. So let me give you five steps to lead people into a deep relationship with God. Now, I hope that they're specific enough for the one who asked this question, but broad enough to where everyone can get something from it. Um, I'm gonna use the farming illustration that Jesus uses in Luke chapter eight with the sower or the farmer and the seed and then 1 Corinthians chapter three. So Luke chapter eight, there's four different places that the seed uh, lands. There's the path, there's the rocky ground, the thorns and the good soil. Now the first step is to make sure that you're the good soil. You have to cultivate a good culture in your personal relationship with God and in your family that extends to unbelievers and apathetic believers. You have to make sure that your soil is still good for growth. Because if it's not, and they start replicating you, then they might have thorns in their own relationship with God. They might land on the rocky path. They might land on the path. But you have to have your own personal relationship Something that I learned very quickly in the different coachings that I've been a part of the past few years is that to lead a healthy church, you first need to be healthy. In other words, I need to make sure as your pastor that I'm spiritually, physically, emotionally, and uh, mentally healthy if I expect this church to be healthy. So my disciplines, they have to be in check. I need to constantly, and I do evaluate myself and my health and work on the parts that are slacking, work on the parts that are unhealthy, but improve my health as I go along. And as I improve my health, the health of the church will continue to improve. But I think it applies to our daily life too. We need to evaluate ourselves, to look at the plank in our own eye, to look into a mirror and work on ourselves. It's not that we're gonna gain any extra favor from God because we're not. We have all the favor from God. God loves us no different if we're the perfect Christian or if we're not, because none of us are perfect anyways. So he still loves us the same. We're not gaining any extra love, any, other, any extra blessing, any extra favor from God. But when we're healthy, the seeds that we plant when we go on outreach will have more of an opportunity to grow. So we need to be the good soil in people's lives. Second is simply tilling the soil to breaking the ground, breaking that common ground that you have together, breaking down barriers that they have and preparing their heart to listen to you. Now, God works a lot in this more, a lot more in this than we do, but we still have to initiate the conversations. We still have to initiate the relationship. We still have to build the friendship. So there's, there's the tilling the ground, the breaking the ground. 
And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it lays out the last, last three points. Paul says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The third step then is that you gotta plant the seed. You can model, you can, you can live a Christian life, you can be the light in their life, but if you never share with them that they need the gospel, if you never share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that God sent his one and only son to die for them, that all of their sins would be covered by the blood of his son. And when Christ was resurrected, man, at the end of time, they're gonna be resurrected too, right there with Christ. But this is where you not only share what God has done in your life, but what God can do in their life. Something that I, I think is a mistake, and I, I've made this mistake so many times when I've gone to like uh, evangelism type of conferences as a teenager, is I, it's so easy for us to just tell people what, about ourselves because we've lived our life. We, we know who we are for the most part. We, we know what God has done. So it's really easy for us to just list off the things and, you know, look what God has done in my life. I've done, or he's done this, he's done this, he's He's given me a great family. He's given me um, all of these things. And, and you know, uh, I, I just want you to know that God has done this for me and he can do it for you too, right? And typically we just talk about everything that he's done for us and we tag on the, you know, he can do that for you too. But whether they vocalize it or not, I think not all, but the majority are hearing that and they're like, well, that's great, but you go to church. You, you read your Bible, you pray, of course God's gonna do those things for you. But me, man, I, I'm, I'm broken. I, I'm, I'm in this dark place. God's not gonna do that for me. So you can't just talk about yourself and what God has done. It is helpful as a living witness of what God can do. But then you also have to express, look, God can get you out of this financial situation. God can get you out of this broken relationship and he can restore the broken relationship. God can, God can do these things in your life if you just trust and believe and follow him because he's already conquered all of your sins. If you just confess with your mouth that he's Lord and you believe in your heart that he's saved or that he rose from the grave. After you plant the seed, you have to water it. I'm, I'm no farmer but I also know that if I plant a seed and I never water it, the seed's never gonna grow. It's not gonna grow. What Paul did was plant the seed. He gave them the gospel and then he moved on. But he left Apollos to be there as kind of their pastor, to water the seed, to keep investing in the relationship through modeling and continually sharing the gospel with them. Some ways it can be just as simple as giving God praise for something small that happened in your life in their presence. But it's constantly going back at the right time. And if you're in a good amount of prayer, then God will lead you in these two. He'll help you out. He's not there just to throw you to the wolves and say, there you go, go get him, tiger. You're gonna figure it out on your own. He's gonna help you through it all. And you'll figure out the times that you need to share the gospel with them again and the other times where you just gotta model it. You just gotta live your life and have them be a witness to your life. But watering it can also let them see that you aren't perfect. 
that you're broken and that you still need a savior. Even after reading scripture all this time, even after going to church every single Sunday for 50 years, you're still broken. I still need a savior and I know that you need your savior too. Now lastly, and I think this is the most important part, prayer. God makes the seed grow. You have to cultivate, you're part of the commission, the co-mission that we have with God, that God has entrusted us with doing some of the work. You cultivate the environment to promote growth by making sure that you're the good soil, that you're tilling the ground, that you're planting the seed, that you're going day in and day out and watering it. But you can't make it grow. Again, I'm not a farmer. I have not been successful with any plant that has come into my home. I got that from my mom. But if I, if I do all of these things, if I, if I plant a seed, I can't physically make it grow. I can make the environment suitable for growth, but I can't make it grow. Otherwise, I think farmers would be a lot more wealthy if they could just make it grow as fast as they could, or as fast as they wanted to, instead of having to wait for the long process of going and watering. Like imagine if you could just skip the watering and just put it in the ground and say, grow, and it grows, and then you, you get the harvest. That's what we want when we go and we share the gospel with people. We want to just throw the seed and, and see it sprout up right before our eyes, and we're like, yes, we did the work. But that's not labor. That's tossing a seed. That's barely doing anything. Praying, I think, is the hardest part about reaching people because it's not in my control anymore. I can till the ground all day long. I can plant the seed all day long. I can water it for years upon years. But if I don't pray for God to change their soil, it's never gonna grow. It's never going to, to actually grow. And you gotta pray for them consistently and constantly. And it forces you, it changes you. It forces you to rely on him more and on you and your own efforts less. Not that your efforts aren't important, but his is so much more important, so much more effective than anything that we can do. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven through eight says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. And if you ask God to change their life, to soften their hearts, to change the soil of their lives by your influence and by working him working through and with you, he will work on their heart. Something that you can't do. He'll work on their heart. And it'll take perseverance, it'll take hard work, it'll take so much time, but it's worth it. It's worth it to see life transformation. It's worth it to see the dry bones come alive. It's worth it. And John chapter four, verse 35 says, don't you have a saying, and it's still four months until harvest, but I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Matthew chapter nine, verse 36 through 38 says, when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And until the day I die, I'm going to work every single day that, uh, that God has given me to do what he's called me to do. Every single day, every single moment, I'm going to seize it and make the most of it so that whenever I enter heaven, I'm going to be exhausted. I don't want to walk in cheering. I want to walk in on like all fours, crawling in, saying, God, I, I did as much as I could do every day, every moment, every opportunity, every minute that you gave me here on earth, God, I gave it all to you. I want the same for you. I want the same for this church. I don't know how much you've noticed, but the laborers and the workers of the harvest of God are very, very few in our day and age. It seems like each passing year, pastors and leaders and Christians are leaving the faith and leaving their godly work behind them. So I wanna end today's uh, message praying that God would raise up a new generation, that he would raise up a new generation of believers that are willing to go and harvest, that are willing to go and, and do all of the hard work to go and reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who are willing to make the most of their lives every single moment to serve the Lord, and that this church would fulfill our call as a church to equip and empower them to go and do the work.